Hello and welcome to the third series of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we currently deliver millions of meals every week. Our purpose is to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect frank and fascinating conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is all about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, my guest is Charles, who leads Gusto's operations. He started his career as a lawyer, spending 13 years at Tesco, since seeing both the golden age and the scandals. And after joining a tiny startup and spending one year there, he joined Gusto. And then after another year, he was promoted to lead all of our operations. I love working with Charles and his people first philosophy makes him such a great leader. In this episode, Charles speaks about imposter syndrome, building a legacy around social mobility and having positive impact on the people he's leading, and his reflections from leading Gusto through 10x growth plus the pandemic. Charles, over soon four years at Gusto, you have almost seen 10x in growth, and I can't wait to delve into this journey with you. Um, but before we, we go much deeper. I really want to hear uh, how was growing up like, how was your childhood? Where did you actually grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in a town called Oldham, um, which is a, an industrial town about 10 miles from Manchester. And I guess I grew up in, in what I'd say is quite an unremarkable place. But, but my memories of childhood are, are really fun. So I had a really happy childhood. I had my, my older sister and my parents around me. I had lots of family nearby as well. They're all very local. So I, I felt like, you know, I was, I was in a really protected bubble, I guess, for want of a better word. And, and just, yeah, had lots of fun. It was, it was a nice place to grow up. How did you spend your time as a child? So I used to love playing lots of sports. I was hyper competitive as, as a kid. So I'd play all sorts of different sports, football, cricket, table tennis, Anything I could get my hands on, I'd, I'd have a go at. And even even playing board games, I got really competitive as a child. I was like really, really, really wanted to win at everything. So yeah, it's something that's, that stayed with me to an extent, albeit I've kind of mellowed out a little bit as I've got older. Well, you're still playing football. Yeah, yeah, not very well these days. And I've got the I've got the bruises to show from playing on Sunday. So um, the recovery <laughs> takes a lot longer than it used to do, unfortunately. And so if you look at like your values, your principles today, what of these kind of links back to your parents, to your childhood? Yeah, so I, I think I, I grew up kind of always wanting to do the right thing. And that's something that stayed with me all the way from being, you know, quite a young child right through to who I am today. And I think... You know, that's something that really matters to me. It's my it's my guiding principle. If I if I know I'm doing the right thing, you know, I sleep easier at night. I feel like whatever happens, you know, I, I can kind of don't need to worry about about the consequences of what happens because it, it's ultimately the, the thing to do. So it, it's something that I feel really strong about. Super powerful. So knowing knowing that you're doing the right thing. And like is this nature or nurture? There's definitely definitely 
nurturing there. I think my parents, you know, I grew up in an environment where it was all about doing the right thing and, and being a good person and being a good member of the community. And, and uh, so there's definitely serious influence from my family there. But I think my parents always give me the freedom to do what I wanted to do. So they didn't push me academically. They didn't push me, you know, on the sporting field or anything like that. You know, I found I was good at some things. They let me decide whether I wanted to really get involved in it or not. And I think that has helped me understand who I am, who I want to be. And, and part of who I genuinely am is somebody who, who really wants to do the right thing. You know, I feel guilty at the slightest thing if, if, if something's not quite right. So I always want to put it right immediately. Uh, I, I love that in you. It's such a powerful point. And, and obviously now you lead, I mean, pretty much thousands of people. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is such a powerful quality in you. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, such an amazing leadership guiding principle. Yeah. And, and so when was the first time you kind of thought about business? I know you didn't, I think you studied law, right? Yeah, I, I guess, so I went to school in the days before the internet existed and it was probably a very different world. And so I, I went to, I went to a really good school. It was the local grammar school and what that school guaranteed was really, you know, good education, which meant you had a real fighting chance to pass exams and, and do well for yourself. But what I guess it didn't really give me a grounding in is what, what the real world looked like outside of there. We're a long way from the, the bright lights of London, etc. So it was very traditional. They, they very much focused on a good education and a production line of accountants, lawyers, engineers, doctors, etc. It was all about kind of good quality jobs for life rather than kind of, you know, understanding the world of business and what, what the real world looked like outside of that. That said, my dad was was self-employed. Well, I didn't know this until I, I told him I was going to give up being a lawyer, but he was a lawyer or he was a legal executive as a, as a young person and hated it. And um, he did it for a number of years. He worked for several years working for a small firm up near Manchester. Um, and then he decided he wanted to get out and, and do something different and went into a partnership with with a guy and they, they bought an estate agency. They didn't know what they were doing oh, wow. um, and, and gave it a go. And then they started buying properties and and doing them up and selling them on and making a bit of money and and so on and so forth. And and so I guess I saw that in my dad and in, in my parents. My mum was really helpful. She, she was part and parcel of all that as well. So I think unwittingly, I probably saw a bit of kind of entrepreneurial business going on in the background, but never really kind of realized uh, what I was seeing until probably later on in life. Fascinating. And I'm sure your dad, um, being self-employed, worked quite hard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, they put a huge amount of effort into, into everything they did. And, you know, he made a real success of himself, which was, which was great. And, and there were some tough times, but there's some really great times as well. So, you know, you, you kind of see the rough and the smooth of it as well. And when, when you're working for yourself, you know, you've got to, you've got to get through both. Completely. Yeah. And so what made you then decide to study law? It's a good question. I think um, <laughs> it, it felt quite a glamorous profession when you're a, a 16, 70 year old thinking about what you want to do with your life. It's not glamorous, I now know, but um, it, it felt that way. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do, um, to be honest. I, you know, I, I felt like there were so many kind of opportunities out in the world, but didn't really know. And there was no one there to really kind of 
guide me into kind of figuring out what I really wanted to do. I, like I said before, I, I went to a school that was very traditional. And so if you said, oh, I quite fancy doing law or becoming a doctor or an accountant, it was great. Another one with a great job prospect, you know, our work is done here, move on to the next person. So as soon as I, I mentioned being a lawyer, they said, great, go and do a law degree and, and you've got a job for life. So I, I went along with it, I think, um, without really realising what I wanted to do at that stage. And whenever we have a gusto party, you're one of the last people. You're quite social. I think you enjoy these moments. How was yeah. university like for you? I loved it. It was great. It was, um, I was very immature, I think, when I went to university. I would hate <laughs> to look at, at the 18-year-old me now. Uh, there'd be a lot of cringing going on, I think. But it it, it, it was great. I, I had lots of fun. The, the first year was probably far more partying than, than work. But then as I kind of got into it a lot more, I, I realized, I really realized, particularly by my third year, that, that you can strike a balance at university between having lots of fun, playing lots of sport, going out and seeing your friends, going to the pub, but actually doing the work as well. The, the, the work's not that hard. It's not that many hours. And you can fit a lot into a week if you really, really try. So I think I went on that maturity journey through university and, 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 and came out doing okay at the end. <laughs> and so what happened what happened at the end of the, the journey what was your first job um so my first I, i did a couple of jobs when i left university which were kind of like small jobs while i was still trying to figure out what i wanted to do um but i applied to a few law firms and, and one of them came back and said okay let's let's take you on and so i went to work for a, a firm in manchester called berriman's less more who were a big national litigation firm so i spent kind of a year as a paralegal and then two years doing my formal training there. And um, it was brilliant. It was really, really good fun. The first year I was there, I was literally in court nearly every day of the week. And there were wow. relatively small hearings that I was running. So it kind of didn't matter if you got it wrong, but, but it taught you so much. It taught you to stand on your own two feet. It taught you to think while you're on your feet for sure i got it wrong quite a few times but you know i do as many as five or six or seven hearings in one day wow um so you know there was lots of you know cramming in knowledge looking at all the case files that the partners are handing to you going to court sometimes on the on the kind of instructions of just do what you can because we've got a bit of a mess here <laughs> so it was really good fun and i traveled kind of the length and breadth of the country going to courtrooms um i've been thrown out of a courtroom by a by a judge why um, why what happened uh, uh, <laughs> well it was a hearing to understand why the case wasn't progressing very well. And I sat there very smugly as the, the claimant's solicitor was getting shouted at by the judge. And then he turned to me and said, what have you got to say for yourself? And uh, I didn't really have a lot to, uh, to, to say back. And he literally threw us both out of the room and said, come back, <laughs> come back when you've got something to tell me. So yeah, it was, uh, it was really interesting, but we're all sorts of shenanigans going in courtrooms. So it, it's a really good grounding. You, you learn a lot very quickly. And I'm sure it's quite social. You met many people, you had Definitely. fun, but at this point, did you feel like, oh, you know, one day I want to, I want to be a partner at this company or like at what, what stage did you feel like this might not be for me? No, I, I, I kind of realized quite quickly that I, I didn't want to be a litigator, actually. As much fun as I did have, it, it kind of felt like, you know, kind of going through the same thing the whole time. And when I qualified, 
I was really keen to do something else. Um, and I, I was really interested in business law mm-hmm. um, and mergers and acquisitions. So I threw myself out there and, and tried to get a firm to take me on. I had no experience of M&A. So I had to kind of really go and show them why I'd be a really good hire. And finally, I got a firm over in Leeds to take me on, which was great. And so I went into that and it was it was one of, I guess, many steep learning curves I've been through in my career because I turned up on day one and didn't really know what I was doing. Most junior lawyers have had at least six or 12 months schooling in the area that they end up specializing in. Um, and I'd, I'd had none. So I was almost back to the, the textbooks from, from law school again. And um, it was a really, really steep learning curve. But I was finally doing something that actually resonated a little bit more with me. We were going in buying and selling companies, really understanding a little bit more about how companies worked. And I found that pretty fascinating. When, when was that? That would have been 2001 I joined. So I spent about three years working at that firm up in Leeds. Oh, and so you learned a lot about business. You saw kind of different companies, different deals. What, um, what did it teach you about yourself? It taught resilience for sure. So as you know, Timo, from your kind of previous existence, kind of M&A lifestyle are very oh, long hours. Brutal. Even, yeah. Evenings and weekends. So you had to learn to look after yourself a little bit more and you had to learn to be very resilient. I think um, something we've talked about in the past, but I made myself quite sick about a year in. I was trying to manage so much all at the same time and it was extremely stressful and I made myself quite sick with it. So I gave myself shingles, um, Mm. which is extremely painful. And I learned a lot from that, actually. It, It was one of those things where... I made a pact with myself never to let that happen again. Um, wow. and, and that doesn't mean I'll never get stressed again because that's impossible, but I know how to manage that stress a lot better. And, and ever since then, kind of when I feel the warning signs coming, you know, I try and just decompress a little bit, take myself out of the firing line, go for a long walk, whatever it is, just to kind of put things in perspective a little bit, you know, Try and try and sleep on it and wake up in the morning because it's always better the next day. No matter how bad something looks the night before, it's always better the next day. So um, it stood me in really good stead that, and I've always felt myself as a really resilient person. But but kind of managing, you know, your health and well being as part of that resilience is really really important to me as well. Such a powerful point. So you kind of learned how to recognize the boundary and you know what what to do if you cross the boundary. Yeah. Because you you are very energized by crisis and by firefighting and you know if things don't go to plan and you know you're you're the first person to lead with amazing positivity. So I, I guess at times it must be quite difficult to figure out where the line is and whether it's too blurred. Yeah, I, f- I feel quite comfortable in a crisis, and I I, I really don't know why. But it's almost a case of you, you you have the kind of the oh my god moment at the start as, as we all do but but i i kind of you know then kind of sit back think about it and go okay how do we get ourselves out of this how do we solve this and it feels quite methodical to me then you know you start to think of a plan what do we know what do we need to know and 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 once we figure that out all right what do we need to go and fix it and it's it feels just kind of like a a very kind of methodical way of of dealing with it and you can kind of deal with the stress when you do that quite well or i i feel like i can um and i just kind of you know almost work out okay these are the 20 steps to get us back to where we need to be let's just execute them one by one and get there 
such such a powerful um, way of looking at it and staying calm obviously and so you had that episode really painful on a personal level but hugely kind of you know yeah. informative from a learning perspective what happened then like when did you decide to leave and where did you go yeah so i went to i went to go and live in london and and the the reason being kind of i i, I met a young lady and she lived in london and she worked in tv and and all tv roles were down in London. So I said, well, I can work anywhere as a, as a lawyer. So I'll come, come and live down in London. And I got a job at Tesco mm-hmm. um, in the legal department. And it was a really interesting new challenge for me because I came out of private practice law um, working in-house and it's a completely different environment. And I was joining a business at the time, which was, I guess, the darling of, of uh, UK business. It was it couldn't do any wrong. Um, everything was wonderful. That changed a few years later. But it was really fascinating to see what the world looked like inside the business. I'd always worked on the outside of the business. I got to know them a little bit, but I never really saw the inner workings of a business. And it was, I guess, the next step for me on the road to really getting involved in how businesses work. Yeah, and it's it's difficult sometimes for people to picture today. But I mean, Tesco was one of the coolest companies back then. And so how long did you stay for? And did you see kind of the good years and then the bad years? Yeah, I, I was 13 years at Tesco. I, I went for three years and lasted 13 years, <laughs> as everybody does. But I had so much opportunity there. I, I've got nothing but great things to to. To, to remember from my time at Tesco, I started working in the legal team. I did seven years in the in the team, three kind of running a commercial legal team, and then four doing the global MA work. So I headed up the global MA legal team. And you know, that took me all over Asia, it took me um, all over Europe. Um, Tesco was in 13 or 14 countries at the time, and we were massively acquisitive. So these were the these were the, the glory years, and we were trying to buy everything you 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 could buy from a retailing point of view. And then actually we were starting to move more into kind of non-retail assets. So uh, buying companies like Blinkbox, who were, I guess, a, an early version of, of Netflix, and a company called We7, which is almost an early version of Spotify. So they were very forward thinking in many ways. It was the wrong time and the wrong place for many different reasons, but so many really interesting things going on there. So the first seven or so years were fascinating. They were really, really great. And then I decided to take a really big plunge and and do something different. And Tesco gave me that opportunity. Um, And I went to work for the the corporate strategy team, which is something that I'd never done before. And it was half corporate strategy, half M&A, but from the corporate finance side of M&A rather than the legal side. And spent three years in that team. And again, it was my next huge learning curve. As, As a lawyer, I use Microsoft Word. I'd never used Microsoft Excel in my life <laughs> until 2011. And that was the hardest bit, just getting on top of that. So again, it was a huge, huge learning curve for me, but it was really good fun, really collegiate team. Um, so they were made up of ex kind of bankers and ex McKinsey uh, strategy consultants. So very smart people. I learned a huge amount for them. The director that I worked for really believed in me. When I joined the team, he said, come and work for us. You know, we know you, we like you, we get on with you and the bits you don't know, we can teach you. So don't worry about it. And he was true to his word. He, he really did and, and really looked after me. And I learned so much in those three years and it, it coincided with the turnaround in Tesco. So going from hero to zero, pretty much overnight. And I think it was probably the best time ever to work in that strategy division because things were pretty easy when things were going really, really well. When things were not going so well and our backs were against the wall, 
I think that's when the strategy team really earn their money and really kind of figure out how we get out of this. And so I worked on so many high profile things that, that really changed the face of Tesco as it is today still. So it's great to see, you know, and, and, and the experience was wonderful. And I just want to pick up the one point you mentioned, right? You're moving from being a lawyer, focusing on M&A and other things into a very strategic role and a much more finance-led role than, than law-led um, role. Like, how did you have the confidence to back yourself? Did you have imposter syndrome? You mentioned you're working with the smartest people ever coming from great, great companies. Like, how, yeah. how did you think about confidence back then? I definitely had imposter syndrome. I, I, I've got this kind of, I, I don't know what it is. I, I love to really challenge myself. And when I joined that team, the director said, do you want it to be a secondment? Or do you want it to be permanent? And I said, I want it to be permanent because if it's a secondment, I've got a get out clause. Um, and I don't <laughs> want that. I, I, I want to, if I'm coming, I'm coming for good. And I'm going to learn. I'm going to make myself learn and I'm going to be good at it. And, you know, the first six months are always the hardest. A little bit of panic at times, a bit of worrying, some late nights figuring out what I'm trying to do, etc. And then something starts to click after a few months and it starts to get a little bit easier and you start to get a bit more comfortable. I, I always remember a really late night in the office and, and one of the ex-McKinsey people who was working on a deal was looking through like a hundred page legal agreement and she was, she was really panicking and worrying and said, I can't, I don't understand what they're looking for. I don't understand what they want. I've got to write a report on this. And I said, can I help you? And, and she said, yeah. And, and within about two minutes, I'd figured out what she needed. I said, here you go. This is it. This is what you need to put. This is what it looks like. And she just turned to me and said, now I know how you've been feeling for the last six months, you know, how tough it must have been to kind of like go from your old role into this new role. I, I get it now. I understand. And so, you know, it's just resilience. It's, it's kind of the challenge, you know, to, to make yourself better, learn something new and um, that, that curiosity to say, well, I, 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 you know, I want to try something different. And, you know, if you've got the will, then I, I think, you know, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, that's really amazing. And so you mentioned from from hero to zero, how did it kind of feel? What changed? How did the culture change? Yeah, well, it, it, I mean, it, it coincided with a new CEO at, at Tesco. So Terry Leahy left and, and Philip Clark came in, who was a 30-year a, a Tesco veteran and was already on the board. So there was a change of guard, but it was still many of the same people. But it felt like there was pressure from day one in terms of things are not quite what they should be or what we thought they were, um, I guess. And, and, and so there was a huge amount of soul searching going on. What's gone wrong? Why have we found ourselves in this position suddenly? A lot of analysis on that. We went back 10 years to really understand what had gone on in the business over the last 10 years. What? And there were some really fascinating things that came out of that. that things well, I'm probably super weren't. intrigued. Is there anything you can share publicly? Uh, probably not. <laughs> we could talk about it offline, but but there were definitely things that weren't as rosy as they might have appeared, you know, over that over that period of time. And and we were running out of runway, and it finally ran out. I think. And did you manage people by then? Um, so it was it was set up a bit like a consultancy. So in the legal team, I had a team of about five or six people when I ran the commercial team. I had one person as the M&A uh, leader. It was more of a kind of long ranger role. And again, in the, in the strategy function, you typically worked in on projects in, in groups of two, three or four people. So mm -hmm. I, I notionally managed a couple of the analysts in, in the team, but, but I wouldn't say kind of say big time um, line management. Um, that was more in the legal team in the earlier days. 
And you mentioned that you staying for 13 years was quite typical. Most people stayed for a long time. Yeah. Why? I think there's a, for me, there was always an opportunity there. So, you know, I, I changed legal roles. I then went into the strategy role. Out of the strategy, I wanted to go and work in the online division. I've been involved in the acquisition of a company called Lazada or a 25% stake in that company and really got the bug for our online businesses. And so after my three years in the strategy team, I, I went and got a job in, in the online world. Was that and, the Amazon clone fun, funded by the Rocket Internet guys? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it was basically Southeast Asia's version of Amazon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, yeah, fascinating business. And it really gave me the bug for an online business. And I happened to meet when we were doing all the all the due diligence, the, the CEO of our general merchandise online division in the UK um, and got on with him pretty well. And so when I was looking for my next role, I, I went to see him and he said, great, love to have you in the team. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a bit more operations focused. I want to kind of get my hands a bit dirtier. Um, you know, I spent pretty much my whole career behind a screen drafting documents or, you know, building PowerPoint decks or, or business cases, et cetera. I, I, I want to get a bit more into the action. So that's probably the first step to where I am today. Uh, what, what are the other steps? Like what happened next? At some point you decided to quit? Yeah, I did three years um, working in general merchandise. Um, there was a lot of changes going on at, at the time. And I became the head of strategy for that division, working for the same CEO um, as he took on a bigger role. And then out of the blue, an old colleague and friend of mine who lived out in Australia had left his job as a lawyer and decided to set up his own SaaS business from scratch. And it was he built a deal management tool, so a tool for managing corporate transactions and other legal transactions. And he was just getting going really. And I think he caught me at the right time. It was, I was ready for my next challenge. I'd kind of run out of ideas at Tesco. I think I'd, I'd, I'd done my time. And he said, do you want to give it a, a give it a go? And I said, yeah, why not? Let's, let's, let's do it. So I left a business where we had 10,000 people in a head office in, in Welling Garden City in the, in the UK to join a business of four people, of which I was the only one in the UK. The other three were in Australia. So it, it couldn't be a, a, have been any different an experience. It was, it was huge. And so, so visualize the conversation with your wife. You know, you're like literally saying, look, I'm going from high salary, 10,000 people, big pension, lots of benefits to a company with three people. How, how did that feel? It took a lot of discussion. I think she could see I was really determined to do something different. And it was one of those itches I had to scratch and, you know, hopefully make a big success of it. But but it felt like something that I had to do. And I really re regret if I didn't do it. Mm. Um, and she got it. She really understood. And yeah, I took a 50% pay cut. And, you know, it was tough for a while, but but we, we gave it a go. And I, I learned a huge amount from that experience. It was massive. It was things that I'm great at, things I'm not so good at, but, but I became kind of everything from the T-boy the to the MD, you know, <laughs> all in one go. I mean, you, you obviously know what that's like as well. And it, it's very really familiar. tough, responsible for absolutely everything. So we had lots of fun. It was tough though. It's really tough. What did you learn about yourself? Um, again, the resilience kicked in because we built a SaaS product, which we thought was pretty good. Um, it needed to get better and you're constantly iterating, but it was a good viable product to take out into the market. But we were selling to law firms, accountancy firms and banks, and they are the most conservative people in the world when it comes to technology. And so the number of 
knockbacks that you get day in, day out, people not returning calls. When you do get into meetings, you know, people kind of making all the right noises and then pulling out the last minute. It's really, really tough. And you, you've got to be super resilient. If you're not, it will it will eat you up very, very quickly. I think SARS sales in, in general is just such a hard discipline and then in a very conservative kind of area yeah whew, it's tough it's tough and yeah. so, so at some point you heard about a company called gusto what yeah. happened so we, we were coming to the end of an end of the road the company called was called the dot yard and we, we we didn't really have the the money to keep going they, they did carry in on australia but but it was more a case of look we're, we're trying to do too much too soon and they needed to really kind of focus on that small region and see if they could make a success out of it. So I, I moved on and I, I went out for a drink with an old finance director at, at Tesco and said, I'm, you know, looking in the market. And what I really know is I don't want to go back to a Tesco. I don't want to go back to a huge, big international business. You know, the one thing I really learned, if anything, was like, you know, working in a much smaller environment where you can just get things done, much more agile, I love the idea of doing that. Ideally one with more than one person, that would have been great. Um, <laughs> and, and he said, do you know Sally? And I'd met her once. Uh, so that's Sally Matthews, who was CFO at the time at Gusto. I'd met her once at, uh, at Tesco um, a couple of years earlier, but didn't really know her. And so we set up a meeting and, and I met Sally down in Acton. Uh, at the time we went to the Costa around the corner. Nice. Um, yeah. From the office. And... I think it must have been all the practice from all the uh, the investor pitch meetings she did, but she absolutely sold Gusto. I mean, she just, you know, I came out of meeting her going, I want to come and work here. This is such an amazing place. It sounds absolutely brilliant. And the, the potential is just huge. I really got it <clears throat> from that 45 minutes. And so I was really, really excited about opportunities, if there were any. And she put me in touch with David who was the COO at the time, because I said I wanted to work in something a bit more operational. And a couple of weeks later, I met David and we got on really well. And then he gave me a call probably about a couple of weeks after that and said, if you're still interesting, I think I've got a role for you. Um, what do you think? You know, what, you know, are, are you up for doing kind of anything? So I said, well, what is, what, what is it? <laughs> and he said, I want you to extend our production line. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about production lines, but Yeah, why not? Why not? And and yeah, I ended up coming to Gusto in February 2018. Okay, so you're moving out of law into strategy. Uh, you dabbled in, in in very early startup, and then now you're coming to Gusto, a little bit bigger than this, the the previous startup of yours, yeah. but still, you know, paint paint the picture. How big was the company back then? I think we had about 200 employees at the time. But we were in our offices in Acton. Um, and I, I, as you know, the thing that everybody says is you walk in the front door in Acton, there's no reception. It's, pure, <laughs> it's a pure startup office. And it's like, oh, okay. I'm looking for someone called Sally. And, you know, someone shouts <laughs> at the back and, and, and Sally appears. And um, I loved it. I really, really loved it. I mean, I think you've got to, you've got to love that to really thrive in an environment like that. And, and I just walked in and like, there's just... So many people looking really busy, you know, sat on the end of desks, you know, <laughs> sat in the kitchen, under the stairs, wherever we could squeeze people in. And it just, it, it felt like a really great environment. There was a real kind of positive hum about the place. And I was just like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of like-minded people in here that, that just really want to make stuff happen. 
Amazing, amazing. And I mean, just like Sally, you know, who is now the chief product officer, you then changed job after, I don't know, 12 months, taking on all of operations. Um, and obviously, since since you joined, the company has grown, I mean, like literally by almost 10x, um, yeah. you know, team from 200 to now almost 2000 people. And you're you're leading the chunk of, of these people, of these amazing people. Like, You've never done operations before. What gave you the confidence to take that job? I'm not sure I had a choice. I think you told me I was doing it and that was that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but no, I, I happily took it as well. I mean, I've always had confidence in my own ability and I've always been really keen to, you know, throw myself into the firing line and, and really kind of, you know, climb those very steep hills. So... I was always happy to give something a go, but I, I, I have always struggled with like that imposter syndrome thing. I do have that mind talk. I do have the, what if I'm not very good at this? What happens if people think I'm terrible? What happens if people see right through me? Am I a fake? It, you know, it does go through my head and I have to really kind of consciously snub that out from time to time because it does rear, rear itself on certain occasions. So yeah, you've, you've got to back yourself. And, and, and give it a go. And, and, you know, if, you know, the leadership team at Gusto were behind me and felt like I could do a good job, then that was a really great endorsement for me to say, right, well, I'm, I'm going to give it my absolute best and, and really go for it. Hugely. Everyone was so impressed by what you had accomplished in, in the previous year um, before you took over all of operations. And I really think, Charles, what sets you apart is how people let you are, how kind you are, how caring you are, how diplomatic, how collaborative. It's just such a special kind of trait in a, in a leader, especially in the ops world where you deal with so many people across the entire supply chain. And so massively, massively impressed. I think we both share the vision to create one culture, not like five subcultures. And so, so I loved these, these points when you took over so much and I've been so impressed by you. Um, and then, and then obviously so many challenges have happened. We've, we've grown at a hundred percent for, I think the last five years, then yeah. obviously the pandemic came, I think it was hugely daunting, March, April, everyone felt like, you know, can, can we feed the nation? Will there be supply yeah. chain shortages? People were buying toilet paper on Mars. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know how how did you feel about it? Leading so many people through the crisis. I was thinking about this last night. It, it kind of came in waves and phases. I think the first phase, the, the kind of the first three or four months when it when it, it kicked in, there was a little bit of fear around because nobody really knew what what COVID was all about and how dangerous it really was, and and so we had to make tons of changes to, to keep people safe and, and, and follow all the right guidelines and, and create as safe an environment as we possibly could. But at the same time, you know, we were really keen to kind of keep going, feed the nation and, and, and do the best that we could in, in what was quite a difficult situation. So the first three months was, was, was a lot around just taking every day as it came and, and trying to figure out what we needed to do next. And, making sure safety was the number one priority of all our people. And we looked after them really, really well, and we helped them out, but also kind of taking the opportunity as well to say, you know, we can do a lot for, for our customers and, and, and more besides. And, and this is a big opportunity for us to shine and show ourselves what we're made of. And, and that really kind of 
push not just me, but the whole team on. I, I'm so impressed with how the whole team have, have managed the pandemic right from day one, right through to today. And we're still obviously in the, in the throes of it. But, but that first three months was definitely kind of a, a real uncertainty phase. I think the next three to six months was a bit more about trying not to be complacent because things kind of got okay for a while. We went through the summer months, the restrictions started to fall away. Things looked a little bit better. And then we kind of went back into the depths of despair again around Christmas last year as things really got worse. And actually the worst couple of months were probably December to February. We had quite high absence rates. Um, I think the peak day was the 29th of December. There were 81,000 COVID cases in one day in the UK and we knew we were going to have quite a rough month. So it was really just about kind of leading from the front, being on site. I went up to site three days a week. I increased the number of days I went on site to say, look, if I expect you people to be on the ground day in, day out, you know, then I'm going to be on the ground day in, day out with you because that really, really matters to me. I'm going to show you that if it's good enough, if we think it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me as well. So that's really important. And then just keeping an eye on people and making sure that everyone's okay, checking in with them at regular intervals. You know, sometimes you don't know there's something wrong with a person until it's a little bit too late. So being really diligent and asking how people are, making sure they're okay, giving them the support and help that they need on a, on even more regular basis than you might do in, in normal times. And, and we got through it because we do. And we, we did a really great job of, uh, of doing that. And the team came out. And I think the final phase for me is fatigue, which is, you know, mm. we're now 18 months in and making sure that, 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 you know, there's a lot of tired people out there. A lot of people didn't take a holiday for 12 months. We've got a lot of people from overseas that didn't get a chance to go home. How do we manage that properly? How do we make sure that 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 you know we allow people to recharge their batteries and 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 come back feeling fresh and good from it all and and you know keep themselves sane, keep themselves fit and healthy. And if if they do that, you know we keep the engagement levels up. Then they'll do a great job for us, and and you know they'll they'll all be okay. So we're still you know, getting through those final stages, hopefully final stages of, of it. I think we've probably got until at least next spring before things might loosen off a little bit, but all hats off to the team on the ground. The hundreds of people who day in day have turned up every single day and just got on with their job with very little fuss. They've been fantastic. Yes, hugely grateful. I mean, to you, obviously, but the entire team. And even today, I mean, I'm, I'm in daily contact with Rob Helen's wife. Yeah. Rob has been with Gusto for five years. He is still in an ICU, you know, being treated for COVID. He's been there for three, four weeks now in very, very serious condition. It's up and down. And I think the burden that's placed on, on you as a person, uh, as Charles, the leader, I mean, it's just so massive and so Truly, truly appreciating how you put people's safety first, how you really, really put so much seriousness and robustness into the planning. That was kind of the pivotal moment for me when I saw the planning you put in place, you know, the 20 pages of here, this is how we keep people safe. This is how we put people's safety first. That's kind of the reason I slept. We had these discussions, you know, endlessly yeah. in the early days, daily calls on it. Yeah. Um, but wow, yeah, no, we've come a long way. And I mean, 
know, hopefully Rob Rob recovers. Um, we're not out of the weeds, but at the same time, as you said, fatigue is a huge, huge challenge for teams who've, who've you know battled this for such a long time. How do you, on a personal level, you know, how does Charles stay sane in this? I have my moments. <laughs> we um, all have. Uh, I, I think again, it's recognizing when you're having those moments and and just taking yourself out of the firing line a little bit. I, I sometimes go for a long walk at night. You know, um, it might be nine, 10 o'clock at night. I'm a bit of a night owl and I'll just go for a long walk to clear my head and, and really kind of get things back in perspective. I do a bit of exercise, not as much as I'd like to, but I do some, that always helps that, that kind of helps me feel healthier. And then spending a bit of time with the family, um, as well, really brings you back down to earth with a bump. You know, it teaches you what matters most, you know, when you're with your family, you know, they treat you exactly as you expect to be treated so there's no special treatment with your family so uh, as, you, as you'll know I'm sure but but small children are very demanding um and so I you know at weekends I become a taxi driver and, and many other things as well so and, and it's just a way of decompressing you know kind of taking yourself out of all that stuff and and going watching you know my middle one go and play football on a Saturday morning then we have swimming with the eldest and we do other things as well so it's just it's just simple things i suppose that that kind of help keep that sanity level yeah and i mean i i think kids are such a great way to kind of contextualize everything because yeah. as you said like they're so demanding they don't really care if there's a deal going on or or any issues at work um it's great fun yeah um, exactly how do you, yeah. how do you how do you cope with that because obviously you've got a huge job as well and you know two very young children you know one of them's only just over 12 months old as well so like, how do you manage? How, how do you manage the balance? It's so hard. I don't think there's a perfect solution. I, as you said, like it's it's carving out time and seeing it as an investment into your performance and not yeah. as a, oh, I'm, I'm slacking. I take time to exercise, like even 15 minutes, great. If I can mm -hmm. get 45 minutes, amazing. But 15 minutes will do running, yeah. hit classes, Joe Wicks, obviously, yeah. competing um, on, on the Peloton bike, running outside. But just getting this exercise in, I, I see it as kind of mindfulness, meditation, mm -hmm. calming me down, putting things into perspective. And then to me, it's it's... You're very similar to you, I think it's it's helping other people and listening to their issues and trying to solve other people's problems is really, you know, really humbling. Uh, and it reminds you how privileged you are kind of having the position you have. And it kind of, again, puts it into context. Absolutely. And, you know, at the end of the day, I... I couldn't do the job I'm doing unless it was for great, great, great purpose. And we are building products that have amazing impact on people and the planet. And that's kind of what motivates me. And, and also working with people such as yourself and, and Rob and the entire team, just enormously proud of everyone. But yeah, it's, you know, it's definitely difficult at times and everyone has imposter syndrome at times yeah. and everyone has dark days. It's hard. The key is how to energize yourself and, and figure out when these things happen. Definitely. Yeah. Just in terms of leadership, like how would you describe your leadership style? Such a cliche question. I'm sorry for <laughs> asking. I'm just, I'm just fascinated. I could describe your style, but I'm more interested in how you would describe it. I think there's a, there's a number of things. I think right at the very heart of it, it, it comes back to the doing the right thing. So that, again, that's my North star. Um, so everything I try and do is with the, with, the, with that view in mind and it keeps me within those, the, the right, uh, guardrail. So I, I start there. I'm, I'm naturally quite 
chatty person. So, you know, when I have one-to-one meetings with people, it always starts with something quite sociable. I think it's really great to build those relationships and that trust with, with people. So within my team, trust is the absolute foundation to achieving everything in my view. If you get that level of trust, and I think that's why we've got such a great leadership team at, at Gusto, um, because there is that level of trust that's been built over a number of years in some cases with, with people. Mm-hmm. So I really, really want to take and build that trust. And once you've, you've built that trust, I think it allows you to kind of really kind of have those open and honest conversations you know, have those disagree and commit moments. So have some really healthy debate and argument in the right way. And then the kind of next stage is really to, to, to hold ourselves accountable Mm -hmm. really. So, you know, make decisions, decide how we're going to, going to take things on and and really hold ourselves accountable. And, And I like to think that, that I could speak with any one of my direct reports and, and do a 360 with them and say, anytime, you know, how did I perform today? Did I do a good job? You know, can you give me some feedback, please? Because it's just as important as the feedback that I give give to you. So I, lo- I always like it to be a, a two-way process and I'm, I'm kind of never shy in, in kind of asking for feedback, even if if it might not be what I want to hear. Um, that <laughs> helps make me a, a, a better rounded uh, individual and leader. Yeah, and I love the humility. And I mean, at the end of the day, the, the, the culture we're both trying to create is one where ideas really matter, data yeah. matters, but it's not about your title. It's about everyone being part of it and, and feeling empowered. Um, so love love those points, well described. And so, you know, you have such such big impact on, I mean, soon 2000 people. What is kind of the legacy you aspire to build? It's a big question, you know, maybe over 10 years or whatever the time frame. Yeah, I think it's definitely focused around people. I I almost see kind of a high performing operational environment as being a given. There's a lot to do and we've got a lot more to to get to where we want to be. But that feels like that's that's my day job and that's what I need to achieve and and that's what we're, we're on a mission to do. But above that, I think that the legacy is all about people. And I think for me, it's, it's building something within the world of operations that doesn't necessarily exist in other standard operating environments. A lot of people will say when you're at school, you know, if you don't pass your exams, you'll end up working down at the local factory. I want people to realize that working at the local factory could be a really good, good thing and a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, So it doesn't matter where you start or, or, or who you are, you know, if you've got the inclination, if you've got the talent, and if you, you if you're willing to put in the work, that that there will be opportunities for you to develop and grow and you know uh, rise up the ranks as well. So I really want to create an environment where people are rewarded for great work. I think where people can get on um, and people can learn and grow as well, and then create a real environment that people want to come to work in. So you know, really get that engagement level up and and say you know I come to Gusto to work. Not necessarily because of the highest paying people or because I can get this kind of job or that kind of job, but actually it's a great place to work. And that matters a lot because I have to spend a big chunk of my life there. And I think, you know, operating environments have not really done a great job of that in the past. And I think we've got a really big opportunity to do that over the next few years to really get that right and and, and make people proud of coming to work in a factory and it not being seen as a, 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 you know, a last chance resort. It's, it's, 
it's something that that you can make a really great career out of. If if I can manage that in the next few years, I think that'd be fantastic. I love how you champion you know, social mobility, higher pay, learning and development, career progression. It's you've already had so much impact on so many people. So just um, sometimes tap yourself on the shoulder and be really proud of what you've accomplished. It's really remarkable. Um, Charles, as a as a final question, what's your most guilty pleasure? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, red wine. <laughs> I think I really love red wine, and I, I can't wait to have that bottle that that that, that you gave us um, when we went on the offside. But I'm going to save it for a, for a, for a very special occasion. Nice, it's a lovely nice, bottle of nice. wine. But um, you know, it's one of those Saturday night wind down, watch a movie you know, have a couple of glasses of really nice red wine. Um, yeah, really enjoy that. Cheese or steak? Ooh, um, I love steak. I really love steak. I love cheese too. Only hard cheeses though, but but um, steak, probably. Nice. Charles, thank you so much for spending uh, the last hour with me. It's been, it's been a pleasure and huge congratulations to everything you've achieved and super fun listening to you. 